Well, my name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics and I want to welcome you all to the second lecture in our series this year on movement, protest and social change. And what we've tried to do with this series is bring together both leading activists and eminent scholars to discuss this theme. And tonight I'm very pleased to be able to introduce a very eminent scholar indeed, um, Professor Linda Gordon. Uh, now, Professor Gordon, um, as many of you might know, is Professor of History and Professor of Humanities at New York University, and she teaches courses on social movements, on gender, um, and on 20th century American history more generally. And she's also served, um, I think, in various uh, capacities during the Clinton administration. And indeed, if I'm, I'm right, I think you were active in the campaign to save the aid to families with dependent children, the main uh, feat, the main you know, sort of New Deal legacy of the welfare state, uh, which unfortunately was not saved. And it's a, a striking thing about the United States that the floor, wobbly though it was, was then replaced by a ceiling. Um, but the, uh, the writing that I think she's best known for deals with contemporary social policy and the history of that contemporary social policy, especially in the United States and especially with respect to questions of gender and family. And she's written a really large number of books, including important books on the history of birth control, uh, a book which remains the definitive treatment of that subject, a book on the history of family violence and a book on the history of welfare policies. And then, more recently, um, she's turned her hand to writing highly acclaimed narrative histories. And in particular, in 1999, she um, published The Great Arizona Orphan Abduction. And then in 2009, she published a biography of the famous photographer Dorothy Langer. And these two books um, won not once but twice the extremely prestigious Bancroft Prize for the best work of uh, American history. And, and I should just say, because it's not appropriate to go on uh, about all the prizes that Professor Gordon has won, but this is really just um, perhaps the, the most striking of a, an extraordinary list of prizes, of scholarly achievements, and I think also of, of more general public acclaim that um, her work has received. So it's a real privilege to be able to um, introduce such a widely recognised and accomplished historian. Uh, Professor Gordon's going to be speaking today on the theme, as you can see up the back, participatory democracy in America's long new left. And she'll be speaking for about 45 or 50 minutes and then there'll be plenty of time for questions. So I ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Linda Gordon. Thanks so much, and thank you, Robin, for a very flattering introduction. Can you hear me all right? Um, let me know if you uh, can't. Um, I'm really honored in the extreme to have been asked to deliver a lecture in honor of Ralph Milband because I benefited enormously from his uh, intellectual brilliance, his clarity, and his courage, um, his respect for grassroots social movements like the kind I'm going to talk about was actually rare among rigorous socialist thinkers in the 60s and 70s. Um, from the time I met him in Boston 35 years ago, his openness to us 
American new leftists and his willingness to argue with us uh, forced people like myself uh, to clarify, defend, and sometimes change our views. And um, with Marion, as a result, who shares not only my politics but many of my intellectual interests, um, and whose erudition has been a great boon to me. With her, I have developed a very beloved friendship. Um, I, in thinking about that, I, um, I thought that this topic actually was rather appropriate, not only because of the issue of participatory democracy, but of the concept that I'll explain a bit later that often goes along with it, prefigurative politics because I um, actually came to think that many of the uh, group discussions I had hosted by Ralph and Marion were themselves a form of prefigurative politics, meaning that they uh, created in microcosm the kind of society we'd like to live in. Um, What follows is what an ethnographer might call participant-observer remarks. Um, It's based on research, but it's inevitably shaped by uh, my own experience as an American new leftist. Um, It's focused not on analysis uh, of what the new left was against, but on the strategies and tactics of the new left. I want to ask you to consider with me tonight what I take to be the primary theme of the American New Left participatory democracy. It's an elusive, it's quite possibly an utopian goal, because how can direct participation work in polities of millions or even billions of people? But as an aspiration, I think it warrants very respectful attention because we know how easily masses of people can be rendered not only inactive but even passive in capitalisms or state socialisms or political structures for which we yet have no names. Participatory democracy is not in itself sufficient uh, to end injustice, um, but as a necessary condition, uh, I think there's a great deal of historical evidence that without democratic participation, there can be no justice. Enabling people to take responsibility for the political structures in which they live should be a serious aspiration, I think, in any socialist or progressive movement. This, this uh, is what uh, I think citizenship should mean. Practicing participatory democracy is therefore a form of prefigurative politics. There is also plenty of evidence that top-down methods cannot produce grassroots democracy. Prefigurative politics is not a formula for organizing, uh, especially not for organizing large groups, but it too is an aspiration that keeps us in touch with our ultimate goals. Now, to discuss these in the practices of the American New Left, I need to be clear about what I mean by New Left. Many writers have applied that label exclusively to the white student intellectual movement that coalesced on campuses in the 1960s. Um, I think this is a misleading uh, way to think about it because it masks the overall unity of what I call the long New Left which began in the United States in the 1950s with civil rights 
traveled through the student movement, the anti-Vietnam War, the women's and gay liberation movements, also taking in environmental activism that was gradually developing in this period. It's kind of symbolic of that unity that participants used to simply speak of the movement, uh, referring to the gestalt of this activism. Um, a, a, a useful mnemonic, I think, for understanding the national specificity of the American New Left is to think about the year 1956. For the European left, 1956 saw revelations of Stalinist regime's crimes and the Soviet invasion of Hungary, leading to massive flight from the Communist Party. In the United States, the year 1956 saw the Montgomery bus boycott, which then produced uh, Martin Luther King Jr. as a civil rights leader. It was also the year in which uh, was published C. Wright Mills's The Power Elite and Allen Ginsberg's uh, book of poetry, Howell. These three figures announced the beginning of something new, each in a different way, through militant activism, radical criticism of the social order, and cultural radicalism. Each one of those figures was both a quintessential American and also well outside the mainstream. Now, as I've said, for, for the New Left, civil rights was the source. And within civil rights, one organization, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known to all Americans as SNCC, was the strongest influence on the succeeding movements. That influence came through a flow of individuals, but also through a kind of reverence for SMIC that made it at times a kind of magical amulet, even a, an incantation that was supposed to automatically provide wisdom. Uh, it was per imperfect like all movements, but I want to use its best practices uh, as a kind of uh, outline of the themes I'm going to use in discussing all the movements, and there are six of them today. Leadership, the distinction between organizing and mobilizing, the intellectual nature of building a movement, uh, intergenerational relations, uh, gender relations, and the construction of new identities. And in all of these, I think the, the premises of participatory democracy and prefigurative politics uh, was, uh, was there beneath the surface. Now, SNCC developed a, uh, a notion of leadership that was quite different from that of, say, Lenin or, uh, in America, Saul Alinsky. For SNCC, the purpose of leadership um, was to create new leaders and to erase as much as possible the distinction uh, between leaders and followers. Um, as Ella Baker, the primary um, spokesperson for this notion, as she put it, Strong people don't need strong leaders. This approach amounted to a participatory democracy uh, approach to recruits. Uh, following this utopian logic to its end, everyone becomes a leader, and there, therefore there are no leaders. Now, this is certainly impossible, uh, because it seems there will always be some people more confident, more charismatic, more forceful, more clear-thinking, more far-sighted than others. But again... I would argue that as an aspiration, it was of great value because it led to a very respectful way of working with non-leaders. Recruitment meant 
not just trying to persuade someone else of your particular analysis or even to persuade them to, as the civil rights people would say, put their bodies on the line. Success happened, rather, when the recruit became confident enough and able to reach out and recruit others. It occurred, for example, when the learners in adult literacy classes in citizenship schools then became teachers, when those who risked trying to register to vote went on to be able to persuade others to try to register to vote. So SNCC was trying to do two things at once. While developing analysis of the weak points of the Southern power structure so that it could be challenged, it also had to build people's confidence in themselves. And confidence building with respect to Southern African Americans meant required breaking through an empirically, historically justified fear that decades of terrorism had created in Southern blacks. This conception of leadership also constituted a prefigurative politics. It assumed that you could not build an egalitarian society through inegalitarian means because those means would simply confirm the patterns of deference, resignation, and self-protection that had been engendered by several centuries of subordination and 75 years of violent Jim Crow. So prefigurative politics was an experiential premise, not just an ideological one. SNCC was simultaneously trying to defeat Jim Crow and to create African-American citizenship. The distinction between mobilizing and organizing, second theme, further clarifies, I think, these aspects of SNCC's strategy. Mobilizing, in their understanding, is something that focuses primarily on bringing together large numbers of people for large-scale brief actions such as demonstrations. Mobilizing depends heavily on public leaders who can reach people through rousing speeches and the mass media. Mobilization could not in itself create the thoughtfulness, carefulness, and stamina that social movements require. SNCC people, uh, it must be admitted, had had an exaggerated disdain for mobilizing, which derived from their historical critique of many older black leaders who had been rather accommodationist uh, in relation to white supremacy. As an example uh, that I remember well, they referred to Martin Luther King Jr. as the Lord. Great mobilizers are not usually accountable to anyone. And the more they are publicly recognized, the less they are accountable to any movement constituency, which means that they tend to disempower rather than empower their followers. Organizing, by contrast, was a very slow face-to-face process. When social movements challenged the conventional wisdom that you can't win, uh, as well as challenging entrenched power capable of very harsh retaliation, then the printed word and the public lecture is unlikely to draw a new person to a meeting or a picket line. Some of this is owing to social anxiety. Few people will come alone to a political meeting where they know no one. New participants are much more likely to respond to the physical presence of another person, to political arguments that arise from a person's individual biography. 
It helps, furthermore, if the person being organized can trust the organizer, which in turn happens through recognizing the organizer as a member of a known community. This understanding became part of a feedback loop in which SNCC's model of leadership and organizing supported each other. The staff discovered, sought out, and encouraged organizers who would be trusted by those they organized. Now, mobilization was also essential for the movement's most heroic and media-friendly actions, such as the Freedom Rides and the Large Marches. But without organizing, few would have been able to sustain the nonviolent response to the brutal beatings or to keep on despite the terror inflicted by the murders. The... The best historian, in my view, of the civil rights movement, Charles Payne, makes a very remarkable claim in relation to what I just said. He says that courage was the least important of the contributions people brought to the civil rights movement. Uh, When I first read that, considering uh, the uh, participants' extraordinary discipline in the face of water, power water hoses, aggressive dogs, police truncheons, etc., I found this an odd thing to say. Later reflection brought me, uh, I think, to a better understanding of what Charles Payne m- means. Courage is too often imagined as enduring pain or fear, and we even speak of the courage of animals. In this sense, celebrating courage Uh, can be primitivizing, as in the story that used to be told about Rosa Parks, often thought of as the initiator of the Montgomery bus boycott. The story was that she was just hired and she sat down in the white section thinking the hell with it. Um, This this is a completely erroneous uh, narrative. Rosa Parks was an experienced and trained organizer who had been searching uh, to... Uh, make a case like this. And this leads to the third of my themes, and that is that uh, social movement activists must calculate their odds, choose their battles, and strategize their resistance. In other words, social movement organizing is itself a complex intellectual project. A social movement is itself a great political achievement, and this is true well before any victories appear. Uh, This, too, is part of a prefigurative vision, one that justifies and honors building a movement with great care and thoughtfulness. It leads, again, to the notion that social movement participation can be the highest form of citizenship. The fourth motif is generational connections, and this figured very, very large for SNCC. Wherever the SNCC organization, which was were basically was formed of high school and university students, wherever they set up shop, they met, so to speak, elders in their language. Elders who had a critique of their society, a sense of responsibility, a personal discipline, and an affinity for collective action. Now, the history of the participation of these elders would not automatically appear as political. Their activism was often working for their church, working for their children's school, visiting sick people. But these facts about the people that Snick called its elders underscore the importance of theories that integrate the social 
into political movements. They are social movements precisely because they're neither entirely public nor private. They rely on trust and friendship that evolve in the space between the public and the private. Furthermore, SNCC didn't search for these elders. The elders just showed up. They arrived saying, in essence, where have you been? We've been waiting. Linking young and old did not always come easily because the young blacks were very resentful of an older generation that had not openly resisted uh, segregation and the oppression of blacks. And meanwhile, the elders often had a justified suspicion of the impatience of the young people and their too risky behavior. Um, But overcoming that antipathy brought material support and experience into a movement which didn't have much of that. It also helped construct an attitude of accepting with respect whatever contributions people could make, however small. It uh, sort of prefigures or symbolizes a a rather well-known notion from each according to their ability to each according to their need. This was not a a matter of good manners, It was a matter of strategy, Uh, and it was prefigurative again, because obviously a new society cannot be built by a single generation isolated from an older one. Furthermore, movements are strengthened when they can replace a moralistic condemnation of past failure with an historical uh, analysis of changing conditions and of the contradictions that weakened old regimes and make Uh, and allow movements for change to have greater chances of success. Fifth, identities. Social scientists who study movements once asked what personal identities attracted people to movements. I think now more social scientists understand that identities are actually reshaped through participation in social movements. They changed through belonging to a new community. In this case, it was becoming part of a civil rights family. Furthermore, for African Americans in SNCC, one of the ways in which you saw identity change was that it shifted from an interracial identity, which was very strong at the beginning because SNCC was a movement of both black and white people, to an intraracial identity as it simultaneously was transforming black from a race to a political identity. And that identity transformation led ultimately to expelling whites from SNCC. This was a heartbreaker for many people who had not only worked but lived together for years. But most of them nevertheless understood the break as a creation not only of the race and society, but also of participatory democracy principles themselves in the sense that it aimed to make sure that black people were in charge of their own liberation struggle. It was, of course, a step back from immediately prefiguring a new society, but many were convinced that it was nonetheless a step toward achieving it. Finally, gender. Through the civil rights movement, women proved as courageous as men in facing physical violence in jail and possibly better in uh, sticking to the discipline of nonviolence in response to violence. Furthermore, the women in SNCC understood themselves as considerably more assertive than was the norm for white women. 
And because organizing, rather than mobilizing, was its priority, women excelled. And many SNCC projects were directed by women, and many women were de facto leaders in developing strategy. This did not mean that the gender division of labor was equal. The women were still responsible for the clerical and house cleaning tasks. Women did not hold public, many public leadership positions, and they were entirely aware of this. But they were conscious also of racism's particular uh, impact on male egos, and that often led them to silence. In fact, it's impossible to speak of gender in the civil rights movement without speaking of race. Even in the days of an interracial SNCC, it was vital that African Americans were the visible leaders and spokespeople. Um, but civil rights activism produced considerable gender change among Southern black men. They gained in self-confidence and ambition for recognition and leadership. They sought the markers of manliness from which they were historically excluded. Some also found romantic and sexual relationships with white women attractive, offending black women and alienating black and white women from each other. Meanwhile, the very principles and discourse of democracy made women more sensitive to the frustration of their own ambitions and capabilities. it's important to remember that it's never simply oppression or simply a subordination that creates social movements, but is more often the collision between raised aspirations on the one hand and the frustration of those aspirations on the other. There were protests about sexism in SNCC, but they produced no resolution, and the expulsion of whites was accompanied by increased insistence on rebuilding a black masculinity at the cost of stepping women to, of asking women to step back. Uh, this then characterized the black nationalism that came to flow out of the civil rights movement at a later date. The gender story within SNCC ended as a doubled loss. It was a loss of female leadership, and it was also a loss of cross-race female alliance. Prefigurative politics did not get very far in SNCC when it came to sex equality. Now, the civil rights movement aroused broad new left support through its morality, its eloquence, and its bravery. And I'm not speaking uh, uh, primarily of verbal eloquence, but equally of the rhetoric of action the freedom rides, the long marches, the singing, the nonviolent response to violence evoked something close to worship. And at one point, um, the uh, student anti, which became the anti-war movement's key organization, SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, at one point, SDS described itself as, quote, the northern arm of SNCC. But civil rights was actually a very limited model for what came next. Consider, for example, the class base of SDS. Um, As its own founding document, the famous Port Huron Statement, and this is its 50th anniversary, as it described its constituency, quote, bred in at least modest comfort, housed now in universities, etc. These people came from relatively privileged backgrounds and had never suffered discrimination. 
furthermore, the earlier student activism focused on protesting the parietal rules, the censorship, and the factory-like conditions on the campuses where their relative privilege placed them. And so these demands were easily dismissed as trivial. But from this modest start came a powerful movement against U.S. imperialism. These intra-university conflicts constituted organizing and gave the students the moral confidence, I think, to defy authority. The Port Huron Statement also asserted alienation as one of its fundamental grievances, uh, an alienation both from the old left and from the U.S. mainstream. In fact, the alienation was for some merely an abstraction uh, or perhaps an inherited alienation because a disproportionate number of the early members of SDS were what we call in the U.S. red diaper babies, uh, people who were the children of leftists, and they had actually grown up among like-minded communities. They were not alienated. Um, But that that background did not mean that SDS was ever able to build the intergenerational relations that SNCC had built. SDS never was able to move beyond its youthful base. It never achieved... Uh, that kind of unity and uh, was always limited by, of course, the turnover since there are always people graduating and leaving the campuses and, uh, in a sense, starting all over again. Now, this Port Huron statement uh, was more existentialist than leftist. It was a call to take up a moral obligation. But in explaining why their fellow students uh, seemed so apathetic. It offered not a moralistic but a structural historical explanation, that is, that the campus ennui had actually been constructed by the American system of higher education. And the more general apathy in the country, this is a country only just barely emerging from the worst of the McCarthyist Cold War, the more general apathy had been constructed by the consumerist, conformist pressures of Cold War politics. This insight uh, became a principle that I think was, an, again, an a important strategic, intellectual, strategic move, and furthermore, a necessary condition for the further growth of the new left, and that was its anti-anti-communism. Very early on, uh, Funders of SNCC demanded that it exclude communists from the organization and even from the famous Port Huron meeting. And after much discussion, they refused to do that. And that position characterized SDS for the rest of of its life. And I think without it, without that anti-anti-communism, SDS would have been unlikely to move so rapidly toward understanding the United States as an empire. The most radical aspects of Port Huron was its call for participatory democracy and the rejection of material incentives as a desirable basis for work and life. Um, this, uh, This ideal, and I quote from Port Huron, work should involve incentives worthier than money or survival. It should be educated, not stultifying, creative, not mechanical. This is the aspiration of prosperous people in a strong economy. Most Americans did not have the, 
the position to dare, to dream of those kinds of, of jobs. Um, the argument about alienation, though, was extremely important because, as Port Huron uh, argued, you overcome alienation through activism and that the kind of community formed through activism is the only kind of community that will ultimately do that. And here you see, again, that very strong prefigurative notion. Quoting from one of early uh, SDS leaders, Greg Calvert, he wrote, while struggling to liberate the world, we would create the liberated world in our midst, while fighting to destroy the power which has created the loveless anti-community we would ourselves create this community of love. Now, SDS never formulated proposals for how to organize a country or a city along participatory democratic lines. It did try to uh, practice participatory democracy internally. You have to remember that the student sense of community arose from the fact that they lived and attended classes together and that new people joined through social networks, not through rational choice. SDS did not so much recruit leftists as it did create leftists. Individual chapters usually began small and they both resulted from and created friendships. They intensified each other's commitments in an upward spiral, which simultaneously strengthened their feeling of community, which in turn made participation more fun. In this enjoyment lies an aspect of the prefigurative that is often missing in sociological studies, I think, and that is pleasure. Social movements often depend at base on what I think of as an economy of affective attachments that may include friendship, antagonism, love, and betrayal. They are not all positive, but they all increase the density of bonds, of gossip, and of being engrossed in that community. SDS did a lot of mobilizing. Uh, It put together large demonstrations, large teach-ins, sit-ins, occupations of uh, university offices. In all of these, talk was central. One of its key inventions was the teach-in. I believe it was invented in the U.S., though a teach-in soon followed here in the U.K. A teach-in was a series of speeches, usually about U.S. foreign policy, uh, which often paralleled through negation uh, the professor's lectures that they were attending. A teach-in might continue through day and night, with listeners taking breaks for classes or food, but then returning. Teachings gained not only popularity, but also status. They came to be considered cool. The more confident students, having been educated in these teach-ins and by SDS pamphlets, would go into classes and interrupt faculty lectures with critical questions or even denunciations. As an educational force, I think that SDS was phenomenally successful. Within its chapters, talk became the medium of the participatory democracy ideal. In the ideal, no one only listens, everyone speaks, and all feel heard. This concentration requires energy, but SDS members were usually young and free of employment. The exertion uh, involved in listening prevents boredom and isolation, 
And at the same time, this active participation works against irresponsible group decisions. The more the participation, the more enjoyment. But the warmth of belonging collided with the desire for openness and growth. Chapters would not turn away anyone from a meeting. Meetings grew larger. Each meeting might consist of a different group of people. Chapters were unable to keep reliable membership lists or consistently collect dues. It was impossible in these larger meetings for everyone to speak or to feel that their opinion mattered. At times, chairmen could not keep order. And if they tried to call on those who spoke least, doing so might break the thread of the discussion. Few chapters developed any process for orienting new members to the historically constructed procedures they had developed. SDS tried to create a structure to coordinate chapters through a national organization, but about how to do this, they disagreed. And there were some, some very forceful people, who equated participatory democracy with direct democracy, allowing no structures of representation at all. They believed that formal representative procedures would become bureaucratized and would render passive those at the bottom. To meet this critique, SDSers made a series of structural decisions, each of which created new problems. Then they created new structures to solve those problems, each of which created new problems, etc., etc. Um, a fear of entrenched leadership, and particularly a fear of people resorting to electioneering to stay in office, led to a decision to rotate all elected positions yearly. This led, of course, to discontinuity. Responding to that, they began to lean on a paid staff who remained for longer stints but were not elected. Members frequently felt that the staff clung to the status quo and therefore undercut uh, consciously or unconsciously democratic decisions. Furthermore, the chapters were all different. Some were weak and needed money, organizational advice, and help. Other chapters felt strong and wanted nothing from the central office. Some even resented the central office's uh, intrusion. Balancing centralization and decentralization was difficult. Compromise and improvisation might have helped. But there were two problems which simply could not be compromised or improvised away. And the first was the extraordinary fast success of SDS. The movement grew in size geometrically in geographic spread and in diversity beyond any possibility of making it coherent. Uh, At the Port Huron meeting in 1962, there were nine chapters. By the end of the year, there were 32 chapters. By 1968, uh, they estimated they had 100,000 members. At Princeton University, the most conservative of the Ivy League schools in 1968, one of every eight freshmen signed up uh, to join SDS. Um, A non-student anti-war movement grew also and began looking to SDS for leadership. SDS needed more staff, needed offices. Not everyone could volunteer. They needed wages and stipends, so they needed to raise money. At peak, the national office had a staff of 20, while others traveled through particular regions to support and connect the chapters. Their job was to try to communicate with and coordinate this 
amazingly diverse mass movement, and I would argue that SDS was quite possibly uncoordinatable. The second problem was ideological disagreement, and this could not be isolated from organizational form. People began to argue about very fundamental questions. Could students be agents of change? Could universities be useful sites for creating change, or were universities actually creating more conformity? And what came after school? These concerns made uh, coordination far more difficult. Awareness of and guilt about their relative privilege led, led many students to reject campus work in favor of organizing others who, in their varied analyses, could be agents of change. And these varied according to the different groups among the working class, the poor, African Americans. A majority uh, toward SDS's later years voted for setting up community organizing projects. these were known as the EREP projects, which were developed in several large cities around the country, but most of these neither achieved much nor lasted. Others focused more on university complicity with the military-industrial complex, as people called it then, and began the more disruptive activity on universities. Still others concentrated on building the massive anti-war demonstrations that were growing at this time, and some tried to enact revolutionary and Maoist fantasies. Each of these tendencies bred self-righteousness and uh, disrespect for other tendencies. Different priorities, both strategic and moral, competed because all of them were pressing. The sufferings and aspirations of the Vietnamese, the repression of the Black Panther Party, the civil rights struggles of American Indians, of Asian Americans, of Chicanos, these political problems, as one SDS leader said, simply do not have formal solutions. But the problems were exacerbated by SDS's anti-leadership, anti-centralist principles. Because elected representative leadership was hindered by structural and ideological roadblocks, an unelected, unaccountable leadership arose. This problem was analyzed best in the women's movement, which I'll turn to in a minute, but let me just put it very simply here. The ultra-democratic SNCC ideal of leadership, when applied in an absolutist manner, resulted in its opposite, lack of democracy. People are, as I've said, unequal in persuasive skills, in reputations, and other leadership abilities. This inequality is magnified many times when the basic activity is talking. Some people speak more persuasively, martial arguments more powerfully. They can unintentionally silence others, render them more passive or more passively resentful. An organization that consisted mainly of intellectuals magnified this inequality yet further, as did levels of male competition to be the most radical and the most militant. These factors stopped the possibility of any possibility of gender equality or even respect for women in SDS. SDS had decided to combat vested interests in leadership positions by requiring rotating officers, as I've mentioned. 
but a more continuous de facto leadership arose informally. And this is because the elected leaders, who were fresh every year, needed advice and consultation. And for this, they turned to those they respected, typically the most confident and articulate, typically also the oldest, the the founders of SDS. When the paid staff in the national office became the only source of continuity, elected leadership became less influential. In this way, principles and structures designed to combat the accumulation of power at the top did the opposite by creating an unchanging group of implicit leaders. The anti-leadership perspective also contributed to the lack of training programs to develop skills in new people. And it made elected leaders diffident, reluctant to initiate anything. Lacking any directions from below, they felt themselves as if perched out on a very scrawny branch, unwilling uh, to make decisions. Now, the collapse of SDS, its splintering into sectarian, uh, supposedly revolutionary groups, was not caused by these internal problems was caused, I think, primarily by its frustration at its inability to change the course of the country. Nevertheless, I I do want to underline the fact that I consider SDS a great achievement in itself, and its influence on the country was considerable, not to mention the way it transformed American campuses, uh, both in their treatment of students, but above all, in their greater openness to intellectual dissent. Nevertheless, the democratic principles became at times a religion and its slogans became scripture, which one was not uh, allowed to dissent from. Now, women's liberation was by far uh, the largest movement of the New Left. Uh, It arose in 1967-68, much influenced uh, by both SNCC and SDS. Its very name reveals its identification not only with the anti-colonial movements, the liberation movements around the world, but also by uh, the Third World Liberation Front in the United States, which was uh, part of a conception of people of color in the United States as part of a third world. Uh, One misconception, though, needs to be explicitly corrected. Women's liberation did not, quote, break off from SDS or from the New Left. As long as there was a New Left, women's liberation was part of it. Participating in all of its struggles against police brutality, nuclear arms, the Vietnam War, demonstrating for the Vietnamese National Liberation Front, the Black Panthers, striking workers, labor union, disarmament, in short, all the key causes of the new left. Women's liberation, furthermore, was not a women's rights movement fighting for equality with men in the current system. It delivered a holistic critique of economic, political, cultural, and social domination and explored how gender dominance worked together, particularly with class and racial dominance. Now, there were other movements, both before and after, that we need to be clear about, Uh, all of them somewhat narrower in both ideology and practice. 
There was an earlier women's movement, which resulted in an organization called the National uh, Organization for Women, NOW, which uh, emerged in 1962. This was a liberal lobbying organization focused at the time exclusively on employment discrimination. Women's liberation, like SDS, but unlike SNCC, was often contemptuous of these elder women who had created uh, their feminist organization. Unlike SNCC, the new feminists failed to learn from their elders or to build any intergenerational alliances. Then there were later spin-offs from the women's liberation movement with different ideological orientations that I don't have time to to define now. There was cultural feminism, radical feminism, Marxist feminism. But the core women's liberation movement, and specifically uh, the part of it that increasingly identified their movement as a socialist feminist movement, which in the U.S. anyway, I, I need to make clear, was quite distinct from a Marxist feminist movement. Uh, It was this movement that created, I believe, far and away, uh, the greatest change. As this feminist identity was forming, women's strategic needs differed greatly from those of civil rights and the anti-war movement both. The young women's libbers discovered that they had long been unconscious of their own oppression. They had accepted it as natural and as an inevitable outgrowth of their sex. So recruitment to a feminist outlook represented for many of them a brand new realization just beginning of a discrimination that had hounded and limited them all their lives. Moreover, unlike SDS, but similar to SNCC, feminists were protesting their own treatment. They were not fighting on behalf of someone else. This resulted in a lot of what Americans call guilt-tripping, both external and internal. Many of them had to resist their own feelings that their relative privilege made it unseemly for them to complain. But they also heard these criticisms not only from conservatives and liberals, but often from their new left male comrades. And this criticism is impossible to distinguish from the sexual objectification of women that has permeated male culture for eons. Uh, When at the first large anti-war rally uh, featured for the first time a women's liberation speaker. A group of men in the front of the audience started shouting, take her off the stage and fuck her. That's what she needs. Consciously or not, this was not an apolitical attack. The guys who shouted that, that obscenity were stabbing women in their most vulnerable psychic spots, their need to be attractive, to be appropriately feminine, and to be safe. Women who had written brilliant analytic papers in universities never spoke in SDS meetings, mainly because of their awareness of being, as one important theorist wrote, as being a spectacle being evaluated in degree of desirability. That way of seeing and hearing women resulted in a near universal experience that happened in meetings. When a woman did speak up and make a point, then a man might speak up and either agree with or make the same point, and the point was thereafter referred to as his. Men automatically regarded other men as their audience, their comrades, co-strategists, or adversaries. Men's ways of seeing, and I mean that in John Berger's sense, literally skewed what they heard. 
Not all men, of course, uh, participated in this appropriative culture, uh, and most did not choose it. But the culture and the male political bonding is a social structure, not an individual characteristic, and it is never possible for an individual to opt out of it entirely. So this sexism was one of the things that pushed women toward autonomous groups, but it was not the main thing. The main thing was women's need to talk among themselves. And out of these conversations arose consciousness raising. Exploring the hidden injuries of gender could not easily be accomplished in mixed groups. They needed free spaces in which to complain and vent anger and explore the intimate without fear of consequences. These groups made possible comparisons among various experiences that then gave rise to analyses. Women were learning by unlearning, so to speak, the conventions of gender. The practice constituted a new form of prefigurative politics that was called consciousness raising. This new practice arose from its content. A new method of organizing rose from the nature of the task. The process ideally was one of shared empirical learning that then led to generalization and theory. Um, these consciousness raising groups, unlike, say, Marxist discussion groups, did not read. Rather, they started with the evidence of women's lives. Their process rested, ironically, on existing gender characteristics, notably women's socialization toward intimate talk with other women, but then subjected those very characteristics to critique. Having bonded with other new left act, women new left activists, women's libers saw that many women considered their problems personal and that this misconception created what uh, the scholars Katz and Alport called pluralistic ignorance. Consciousness raising reclassified these experiences as social, not personal. And once that was understood, the search for causes could begin. Um, in some cities, these consciousness raising groups formed citywide organizations that defined themselves as socialist feminist groups. In most places, this never happened because the dominant mood was quite consciously anti-organizational. The sources of that antagonism came in part from the sensibility that animated SDS, distrust of bureaucracy, of centralism, of authority. But the women's liberation movement in many ways represented a peak of anti-authoritarianism. The new feminists directed much of their fury at the experts who had been misinforming them prescribing social conformity, holding up conventional standards of what women should be and do, uh, experts such as doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, lawyers, teachers, ministers, politicians. But then another source of that resistance to large organizations was the ethos of participatory democracy in its most radical and I would argue most absolutist form yet. The new feminists wanted no leaders, no chairwomen, no rules of order, no agenda. Some groups enforced equality. They might ask each person to speak once before anyone else could make a second comment. Some groups used poker chips. They would start out by giving everybody, say, five poker chips, and you had to put one in every time you spoke, and when you were out, you could never speak again. These systems clearly inhibited the development of thinking through back and forth responses and challenges. 
This radical egalitarianism may have been the perfect form when the groups were doing consciousness raising. It allowed all the assembled experiences to be added to the discussion. Uh, And it was obviously prefigurative, at least in the time spent together. The groups were intensely enjoyable. Members hated to miss a meeting. Meetings constituted, of course, an island, a weekly free space within a far more complex and hierarchical life of jobs, bosses, co-workers, families, bureaucrats, etc., etc., none of which organized, uh, operated according to these feminist rules. This is precisely why the consciousness-raising groups were so much fun. While extremely productive, they were not required to be immediately goal-oriented. Nevertheless, uh, it had one advantage, and that is when smaller groups planned and started specific organizing or mobilizing projects, they were able to do so in a manner that extended the participatory and prefigurative process. But these practices did not function well in larger organizations. Let me just shorthand now some of the problems. The meetings were too long. Members with tighter schedules would depart, leaving decisions to be made by smaller rumps. Those who had to get up early in the morning would simply quit arguing and go home. Letting everyone have a turn to speak meant that conversations became completely unfocused and wandered into different topics. There was no procedure for requiring comments to be succinct. People who missed previous meetings or who were new could force the group to go over old ground. No decision was permanent because all decisions could be reopened. Chairing authority was easily undermined. Basic organizational needs were not met. Collecting dues, acculturating new members, defining members' responsibilities. As with SDS, the leisurely, loquacious style of meetings reflected often the relative privilege of many members, but The women's movement was not a student movement. It was an adult movement. Members with work responsibilities needed an orderly, efficient, and expeditious meeting style. As they aged and their lives filled with more obligations, they could not maintain uh, the demands of such long, leisurely meetings. This is where the failure to create cross-generational collaboration uh, strongly weakened the movement. Gendered patterns then exacerbated these difficulties. The experience of living with male dominance made many women even more anti-hierarchical than men, and the resentment of leaders was uh, extremely strong. Women who were accustomed to being disregarded or to being so intimidated that they feared to speak up uh, often developed exaggerated fears of being run over by even women leaders whose confidence and articulateness seemed like that of men they had experienced. The word collective became a sacred liturgical word, an individualist damnation. Emotional expression could trump decision-making and strong political argument. An interjection common in women's meetings, quote, I feel uncomfortable with this discussion, could have the effect of putting a stop to any movement toward resolution of the issue. The organizational effects of this anti-hierarchy principle created uh, what one scholar called the tyranny of structurelessness, an unaccountable leadership. 
um, often referred to in the women's movement as the heavies because what they said and thought and proposed carried disproportionate weight, their statements could carry the impression that there was a consensus when a willingness to vote on it would have shown otherwise. The problem was exacerbated, again, like in SDS, by too little focus on internal development of leadership and too much focus on outreach organizing. There was no, were no formal provisions for training and the skills of chairing meetings, for assigning responsibilities, writing press releases, etc. Moreover, because the movements did not appoint formal leaders, the press did it for them. The press always needs a spokesperson to interview. Uh, and New York, the media capital of America, became the place where the press turned to these people and a group of women who represented absolutely no one took on the role of spokespeople for the women's liberation movement. Despite all this, uh, the movement developed and did so uh, less through mobilizing than organizing. While SDS was superb at educating, women's liberation changed consciousness and identities uh, through masses of women. There was a a moment, for what it's worth, I'm not a fan of polls, in which more than 50% of American women answered that, yes, they were feminists. Uh, These organizations held public speakouts against rape and for reproductive rights, They built a national union of clerical workers, 9 to 5, which is an important union yet today. They uh, conducted a victorious campaign against the coercive and racist sterilization of the poor. They ran Take Back the Night Marches, Defense of Gay Rights, defended the Black Panthers, campaigned for publicly funded daycare, organized domestic servants, protested gender and racial stereotyping and tracking in schools, organized in favor of welfare rights. The socialist feminist citywide organizations excelled at this. Bread and Roses, an organization in Boston, for example, picketed the for-profit abortion clinics that sprang up uh, when abortion was uh, legalized to protest, protest both the exploitive conditions for the staff who worked there and the speed-up that resulted in inadequate time for helping pregnant women make thoughtful decisions. The Chicago Women's Liberation Union created a rock band that performed nationally and a graphics collective that supplied the whole national movement with posters. In many cities, women's schools developed, a bit like open universities, except that the courses ranged from auto mechanics to Marxist economics. But as with so much of the New Left, what had staying power were these separate projects, not multi-issue organizations like SDS or like Bread and Roses. It's a mistake, though, I think, to measure social movement success by organizational stability. The women's and civil rights movement cre- movements created a profound consciousness change that is unlikely to be wholly erased. When we consider how early in a person's life and how deeply embedded gender is, women's liberation was astoundingly successful. Feminism arose within the Black Panthers, within young lords, in groups of American Indians, Asian Americans, Chicanos. Of, Although, of course, plenty of structural racism and sexism remain, in fact, uh, 
it has become illegitimate to speak uh, publicly and openly in sexist and racist terms. More important, I think, the influence of all these new left groups was synergistic. I think that those influenced in this period of time through into the 70s, uh, these groups moved people to the left in all directions toward greater racial, class, sex, and global justice as well as uh, environmental uh, consciousness. If American women's movements were once the vanguard, today those of the global south are uh, in leading positions. There, their struggle is much harder. By one estimate, more women die every day from various forms of deprivation and mistreatment than all deaths from warfare. These women's movements of the global south are very similar to the socialist feminist movements that existed before in the U.S. in that they are holistic because they are faced with economic, familial, religious, sexual, environmental, and neoliberal violence all at once. Um, the long left, I think, proved that small participatory and egalitarian groups could create change. Its implicit challenge to Leninist models of liberation, its awareness of a variety of forms of domination enlarged its impact. Uh, as I said before, excessive participatory democracy uh, is not what caused its disintegration. Uh, it did no worse than unified left parties elsewhere in the capitalist West. American it, it faced uh, major enemies. American imperialism and militarism rallied support. Uh, um, uh, capital's exploitation of people of the global south deindustrialized much of the United States. Uh, smothered labor unions forced millions of workers into the casual labor market. Um, it's true none of the new left articulated a plan for making the whole country more participatory and democratic, but no one else has done it either. And in the U.S. today, uh, the left is having to do the work that we believed liberals had accomplished a century ago, that is to campaign to stop restrictions on the right to vote. Um, it uh, seems to me that the new left, while it lasted, carried uh, for a time the most citizenly, the most democratic, and the, most, the greatest social justice ideals uh, of the United States. Thanks. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that wonderful talk. Um, I think we'll just move straight into questions because um, I'm sure there's a number of people who'd like to ask some. Can I just get an indication of this gentleman here at the front? Did, hi. <clears throat> Did you look at the, sort of the interrelationship between social movements and formation of political parties or the evolution of political parties? I, I find that a, an interesting what I was trying to sort of sort this <coughs> out in my mind as you were speaking. One example, the Green Party in Germany started as a movement, and it, it, in its evolution as a movement came to the point where it sort of asked itself, well, would we be more effective as a political party or should we stay a movement? And so you have this split, and to this day you have this split in the Green Party in Germany between the Fundis, which are the fundamentalists, which are the movement people, and the Realos, which are the realists, the, you know, the pragmatists, the, the politicians. Um, 
But there's similar examples there. Another example that kind of open source and file sharing movement, which is a really exciting one at the moment because the pirate parties in uh, Sweden and Germany have really been making inroads and all of a sudden these participatory forms are really hitting the German parliamentary political scene. Again, an example where movements and politics kind of come together. Are there examples like these in, the sort of in, in, in your own history? Uh, that's a huge question, and I'll just uh, be able to just sketch out a few things. Um, it's interesting that at its beginning, the purpose of SDS was to work within the Democratic Party. And uh, that's symptomatic of what goes on in the U.S. because we have no Socialist Party or Labor Party or, uh, or legal Communist Party. Um, I think that social movements need to, and usually if they're productive, have built their best strategies in relation to electoral politics. And I, um, I would say that I'm uh, very convinced by an argument made uh, particularly by uh, Frances Piven in some of her work about that relationship, although you can see it earlier in American history in the, uh, in the new book that Eric Foner wrote about Abraham Lincoln. He makes that argument beautifully about the relationship between abolitionism as a social movement and what happened in electoral politics. Um, but at least in the American situation where we have no left party and where the two parties are not really that much different from each other, I do think that it's hugely important that social movements constantly push uh, from the outside. But pushing from the outside does not mean um, uh, removing oneself from electoral struggles. I think there are times, uh, we face one right now, when uh, it's just irresponsible to remove oneself from uh, the electoral campaign. I'm not sure I would take that position in absolutely every single uh, political campaign. I think it's very, very contextual. Okay. Well, um, we've got two uh, blokes. We've got this bloke up the back here. <coughs> Your point about anti, anti-communist communism in SDS when they left in the 60s. The problem was, though, um, it's true you had that, but what happened was, uh, and I came in on the tail end of all of this and when I was 17 in 1968, was the Leninism. You know, no one, you know, this is kind of weird ballet with Leninism where the problem is you encounter the heroic guerrilla. That's the problem, basically, that you start identifying with the Vietnamese and you say, well, we have to be exactly like them, which is have a Marxist-Leninist party because that's what they had. And, um, you know, I remember back then saying, well, let's be like the Wobblies. You know, that's American and also, you know, participatory. But, you know, it, you, know you know what happened in 1969, 15 different varieties of Leninists, some with crew cuts and some with long hair, fought it out in a shabby place in Chicago and destroyed <laughs> SDS. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the big problem. It wasn't the communism business. It was trying to have some critique of Leninism, the concept of Leninism, because that just came through the back, the back door. The other point I'd make about your cla- the class basis of SDS, I mean, it did change over time. You know, Ivy League colleges, and then you had state universities and community colleges and then people coming from the Vietnam War who were working class who were getting universities. Absolutely. By the time I was around, the people I was working with was the Vietnam veterans against the war. 
and they were all working class. Uh, you know, it wasn't absolutely. You know. um, and one final point historically. I mean, if you, you're at the LSE, you know, this this problem of informal democracy and informal hierarchies was actually analyzed by the webs. Uh, we always think about it as bureaucrats, but actually we're very sensitive to this. And if you read their work in the 1890s about the origins of British trade unionism, they talk about participatory democracy in the early trade unions in books like Industrial Democracy. Since we're in the place they found it, I thought it was useful to bring that point up. Thank you. I just... Uh there wasn't really a question, but I'll just make a quick comment about your first point um, about Leninism. Uh, one, uh, accepting uh, the idea of, pushing, of keeping communists out would not have stopped that. And secondly, it's very important to understand the, uh, the context of anti-communism in the United States, which was uh, different from what happened in Europe and was extremely fierce fiercely and widely used to, dis- to suppress any kind of dissent. Uh, and that is uh, what people in the early 1960s had yet inherited. And so I think their decision was uh, both a, a moral one as well as a, a strategic one. Okay, can we have this woman up the back here, please? Hello, uh, I'm Katrina. I'm a student here. Um, thank you so much, Professor. Um, I just wanted to know about the women's lib. Um, you talked about methods. Um, what do you think is the way forward for um, feminist practice today? Very <laughs> <laughs> broad <for a> question. <laughs> uh, well, uh, talk about big questions. Well, uh, certainly, um, I, I think there have been gains that have not been erased and probably won't be, but you know, uh, as with all such struggles, um, you know, as our own uh, our own hero Thomas Jefferson said that, you know, the roots of the tree of liberty have to be constantly watered. They, they do not stay fixed. Um, but um, I think I will make one comment, and that is that we, because I was of that generation, we absolutely did not, could not have conceived the virulence of the part of the development of the right wing in the United States that was directed against feminism. Um, I think um, this, this is one area, and it obviously has a great deal to do with religion. The United States is, you know, the most religious country by far. You know, it's on, on a par with Bangladesh in terms of how religious it is, um, that uh, uh, fit in with it. And so uh, we are still faced, I mean, I imagine plenty of you here have been sort of uh, amazed that there are people who are attacking birth control and wanting to make birth control illegal in the United States. So that I I think we underestimated how threatening uh, these assertions about gender and about male dominance were for so many, many people in the United States. But but again, I, I would say, I'm going back to my notion that the new left had a synergistic impact, and that's what I think is needed today in the United States, that you know, we're facing a situation that's really very similar to yours, if not in, in quality, if not in quantity, in that the progress of neoliberalism 
uh, is really creating, making an, uh, the United States an economic disaster, and this economic disaster uh, hits women the hardest by far. So that um, a, a movement that's focused strictly on one issue um, is not going to uh, do what needs to be done. Okay, we'll have this gentleman here, and then perhaps we'll take two. I think this gentleman, and then this woman um, in the yeah, second row. A couple of months. That's a, a great idea, Robin. The, a great uh, idea. The, the American Vietnam War produced a lot of protests. The one I read about them was a weatherman who actually did engage some uh, terrorist or, or activities. Uh, there was a woman burning in Ray Dawn. I once talked to Miles Copeland, who was a top man the CIA, or you may have heard of him, Bernadine, he referred to her. I, had to, I didn't meet him. I talked on the telephone about the time of Vietnam War. Do you know what happened to her? I understand she's now lecturing quite legally in law somewhere, but this movement then stopped when the end of the war. Could you hear me? No. I, I was talking about the word. Can you hear me? No, we, can, we can hear you. The question is, who were you speaking about? What was the gentleman's uh, The name? weathermen. They, that was an underground movement. You mean the, what happened to all of them? Well, one, one, one Bernadine Ray Dawn, an actress. Have you heard of her? She was the most publicised. Oh, Bernadine Dawn. Did she, I understand yeah, she's, she's not working quite she, legally. She's a lawyer, right. In a quite she's legally. a lawyer uh, uh, engaged in um, progressive lawyering in Chicago. Uh, I talked to Miles Copeland about it. Have you heard of Miles Copeland? He was a top man the CIA who... Uh, he wrote a lot of books about it. And he, I, I, mean, I didn't speak, but I talked to him about her at the time of the Vietnam War. But thank you very much. Okay. Um, can we have this uh, woman here at the f- second row, please? Um, so just sort of to refer back to the previous comment that was talking about the SDS Convention of 1969 and not sort of to harp on a sort of tragic moment for the new left, um, Luckily, one that sort of only had ripples of impact. But to what extent do you think the fragmentation that happened leading up to and at that convention, specifically in SDS, had on the new left as a whole? And to what extent do you think that fragmentation has had on sort of the legacy of the new left in sort of popular history in the United States and more largely abroad? The impact was enormous, uh, absolutely enormous, uh, and I, I personally think, you know, altogether negative. Um, I think um, it allowed um, uh, um, a misunderstanding of the history that associated the New Left an awful lot with, um, ex- quote, extremism, let me put it that way, not exclusively violence, but extremism, although... Uh, I, I do think that a lot of people's attitudes about the new left also had to do with sort of cultural radicalism, right? Uh, free love, drugs, et cetera, et cetera, which was really not a very common, a very prominent theme in in the new left. But secondly, I think it had a, a really discouraging effect on a lot of people uh, because I think there were really many, many people who thought that of, in varying degrees, because not all the groups were equally fantastic in the literal sense of fantastic. Uh, but I, I think it caused a lot of people to think um, this is this is irrational thinking. This is thinking that is detached from empirical fact. 
uh, the weather people's notion that there were these people of color who were going to rise up uh, to follow them, the uh, Progressive Labor Party's notion that uh, people in the factories would be uh, would join their political party and recreate uh, a real working class left, just flew in the face of what a lot of people uh, knew to be the, the facts about uh, uh, the tremendous power of American uh, patriotism, conformism. But uh, I will uh, add one more thing. You have to factor in the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, this was, among other things, the first televised war, and people were absolutely uh, just so horrified by watching what their country was doing uh, that it encouraged that kind of extremism. extremism. While on the other hand, uh, there was a patriotic rallying, at, at least at, at still going on in 68, 69. I think it lessened by the end of the war, uh, 71, 72. Um, it's very, very difficult to fight uh, against your country's policy when it's actively at war. And we're seeing this again, uh, obviously, in the way that we now have two parties, both running for the presidency, with essentially the same foreign policy, uh, and it's been very hard to, to gain, for people who are opposed to that to gain any traction. Okay, yeah, Dylan. And then this person with her hand up there. Thank you very much. I'm a member of NOW and the HRC, and I was in the SDS in my undergrad. Uh, I just wanted to connect two ideas, one from the beginning, which was erasing the, um, the discrimination, the distinctions between leaders and followers, and then later on you talked about sort of um, frustration with social change and also about splintering afterwards. And I was wondering if you could talk about Occupy. It's probably an obvious topic that people have thought about, but just oh, do you think there are going to be outcomes similar to this in terms of the splintering of successful projects within communities around the United States? <laughs> well, I hope so. I, I don't uh, really have much of a take. I mean, I, I certainly was, like many former New Leftists, just overjoyed when uh, Occupy happened, and I paid very, very close attention to its own uh, participatory um, methods, uh, particularly uh, uh, the method called the People's Mic. I, I assume you all know what that is. It's as really, I think, just an absolute stroke of genius because having to repeat someone's words forces you to really take heed of those words and to either own them by repeating them or to separate, distinguish yourself. You know, you can't, it's much harder to be passive. And so I, I was very, very interested in that. On the other hand, um, in, in New York, which is really all that I can say because of what's where I, I live and that's where I observe uh, the fact once they left their space and didn't any longer have that kind of unified public presence, uh, they've become less visible. There's still some very good work going on, but as I said about all these other movements, it happens in specific projects, and they're usually single-issue projects not the kind of multi-issue organization that SDS or, say, Bread and Roses was. But I, I haven't given up on them. <laughs> oh, well, 
I just want to say um, thanks for a really good um, talk. It was fascinating the way that you um, picked out all the problems with participatory democracy as well as sort of saying what it's good for. I mean, you, you've actually answered most of my question um, in the previous one. I wanted to ask you about what you thought about Occupy's mode of participatory democracy. Um, that was all, and whether you thought the same um, kinds of problems would ensue. But I think, in a sense, you've, you've answered that in terms of the focus on... Um, it's both mobilisation and organisation is what, is what they're doing, isn't it? And it's much harder to see what's happening organisationally now, the kind of, you know, through the loss of spaces, through the loss of occupying physical space, I think. But you've really answered it. OK, can I just see how many other people have a, have a question? Um, I think we'll just take all of them. So if you've got one, stick your hand up now. So um, this uh, gentleman here and then this person on the third row. Hello. Um, my question is a more sort of broad conceptual question. With the long new left in mind and other ideologies such as conservatism or liberalism, does one have to sacrifice their own ideology to participate in internal politics? In other words, to be a social move to have a social movement is to have a place in external politics, to form an opposition. Uh, for example, sort of Labour in this country, the Labour Party, is more of an anti-Tory party rather than having a, their own left movement in this country. So, for example, the dominance of the industrial complex in America and the intent on economic globalisation and economic dominance, does that precipitate all the... All, ideological intentions for anyone that is intent on participating in, in internal politics. So forgive me if it's a broad conceptual question. Uh, I'm not sure I've done that, but anyway, I'll do, try. You, do you want to carry on? Yep, so. <coughs> Thank you for a fascinating uh, presentation which also evoked lots of memories as well as uh, um, <laughs> conceptual uh, issues. I, I just very quickly, I mean, talking about big questions, but one of the things that have come up very clear from your sensitive and contradictory, in a way, uh, depiction of participatory democracy is that, in a way, the long left, as you called, uh, hasn't found an effective alternative decision-making mechanisms to that of the old left. I mean, obviously, some were more uh, extreme than others, but I think that, in a way, um, the fact that it was more covered, for example, in the civil rights movement was because the kinship relationship of the community has been exclusionary as well as inclusionary, and therefore, given patterns of inequality has already been effective there in informal as well as formal decision-making mechanism. While when you, talk, when you relate to an open situation, then you come to this tyranny of structuralness, which also does not have the effectivity. We had here in GLC some very extreme kind of discrepancy between the way that the women's unit tried to work in, in the midst of this traditional bureaucracy. So this is kind of one cluster. 
problem. The other one, which relates to your pessimistic conclusion about that we have to now work on what we thought 100 years ago was accomplished, is the relationship between social change and social co-option. Because very, we see very much, I mean, various issues of um, rights and, and human rights, but and women's rights in this so-called humanitarian militarism in Afghanistan and, and other places, using the language which we so much try to struggle to establish as an alternative. And, and I wonder if you had any kind of thoughts about how, like, you're very important, for example, distinguishing between mobilization and organization, if you had any thought about anti-corruption <laughs> methods beyond the Marcuse's big refusal, which obviously proved itself as ineffective as well. There's one more. Oh, there's one more. Oh, oh the one more is Robin. Yeah. Robin. Oh, please, yes. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask, uh, I mean, uh, you, you, you presented um, uh, you, this very vivid account of the, the, the new left uh, and its practices of uh, participatory democracy, and you contrasted it with Leninism, and, and obviously one can understand there are, were very big differences, but um, actually, of course, those were partly differences of situation, because where Leninist organizations became really important, as you mentioned in anti-colonial struggles, for example, they face simply such a completely different situation I I suppose really my question is simply this Um, given that there are differences and there certainly are might there not be some similarities uh, too between Leninism and the new left participatory democracy um, concept Uh, I, I think to begin with both of them uh, relativize uh, representative democracy or they, they both seem to be a little um, feel to go beyond they would like to say uh, and then um, another thing that is going on is uh, in a hostile environment sort of changing uh, values and uh, stressing egalitarian and uh, progressive values of one sort or another and the women's movement, the consciousness raising I mean, I think I'm almost right in saying that as, as if one was a historian, including in the United States of these movements, one would see that actually it was in the Communist Party, for example, that political correctness became a, a slogan and was linked to gender issues and gender oppression. I think there was a significant feminist current, a minority one probably, uh, in the CPUSA. And of course in the uh, you started off, the, I mean, and something that makes the new left in America very different from the new left in this country is that um, uh, it, it faced big issues like, you know, racial exclusion on a vast scale in the U.S. South and, and also militarism, the U.S., uh, the Vietnamese War. And, and, it, and so actually communist groups did make some contribution to... Absolutely. Uh, the, the, um, so I just wonder whether we can temper a little bit. The, I mean, while admitting there must be important contrast between the new left and... But there's a degree of sort of intensity 
right. uh, uh, somehow there's some, something of the feel of it and the idea of consciousness changing and, and establishing values at variance with that of the dominant society, which, in, including Leninist practices, so, somehow helped um, to allow it to happen. Uh, maybe I'll start from that and go backward. Um, uh, I think the Communist Party contributed very, very greatly to the new left. I already mentioned that many of the the young people had grown up in these families, but let me uh, point out, as as you well know, that in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, the Communist Party was the only white group, the only political party that stood against segregation, that actually... Uh, considered what they call uh, male chauvinism to be a problem and something that was wrong. And furthermore, in relation, and this relates also to what Nero was asking, uh, the the Communist Party USA actually engaged in, uh, as I understand it, quite formal, uh, deliberate uh, training in skills of its members, uh, which is something I've come to think is, is extremely extremely important. You don't just assume that people are going to get this by osmosis. But it was, of course, uh, you know, ultimately governed by the common turn in, in terms of a, of, of a lot of important decisions, and also it had a vanguardist uh, image of what would ultimately happen in the United States. It's those parts of, of the um, movement that I uh, I think the New Left was most critical of, but I also think that uh, the New Left had a very, very deep uh, appreciation of the fact that uh, these people have to transform their identities, their values, but even their daily practice in order to uh, make the kind of progressive change that they wanted. Um, you know, well, enough said, but but in the, the fact is that there was a lot of contribution. Uh, and also, I should remember, mention, of course, to the labor movement, because uh, much, much of its organizing in the 1930s benefited enormously from individual communists and, and Trotskyists. Um, about the, the issue about co-optation is, is huge and complicated, I think. I mean, for example, way back in... 2001 or whenever, when the U.S. Uh, was claiming that by intervening in Afghanistan it was going to liberate women, we need to regard that, I think, in two ways. First of all, that shows the degree to which the idea that women should be equal had become a part of the U.S. mainstream. That is a victory and should be understood as a victory created by the women's movement. The fact that it's then co-opted to be used in a very, very conservative cause is something that just happens all the time. And, but I do think um, that people are often, they often forget the first part of that, uh, of that equation, uh, that, that, that very need to pay lip service to a, a goal of women's equality or of black equality or and so on, uh, becomes really important. And, and you know, we, we see it in the negative, you know, just like here when Mitchell called the cops plebs and when Romney talked about the 47%, um, the, the, 
what the problem is, it's no longer acceptable to publicly articulate that. It doesn't mean that people don't have those values. They certainly do have those values. But the fact that, they, that it is now a problem to say that publicly is a sign of what has been gained. Um, the, the only thing I, I can, you know much more about the problem of co-optation than I do, I know because I know your work, is that um, I think you have to start, I, I really believe a lot in this very hoary principle from each according to their ability. And I think you have to start from the, the things that liberals will say and then push to go further. So the correct answer is, uh, great, you want to uh, give human rights to women. Okay, this is what we need to do in order to accomplish that. As opposed to saying that's just a shuck, that's just a, um, a uh, you know, uh, just a piece of fraud to say that, which I think doesn't get you anywhere. Um, I'm a little confused about your question. Uh, let me just start by saying one thing, and then you may have to respond. You know, there are all kinds of social movements, including odious ones. The Ku Klux Klan was a social movement. The Nazis were a social movement. There are also, you know, I don't know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was a big social movement in the United States for a while. You know, it's not odious, but it's not... Uh, you know, it's not going to make major change. Um, and social movements are capable of being uh, quite non-ideological or even just capacious with regard to ideology. But I, can you say your question again um, real precisely because I didn't quite get the rest of what you were get, aiming at. <clears throat> So, summary. My main con- question was a conceptual one, in that if one wants to participate in politics, uh, does one have to sacrifice their own ideology in order to meet the broad aspect of their electorate? For example, you know, there's, Lenin is famous for evacuating the definition of socialism by, for example, the first thing he did was to, January 1st, 1918, to close the, the parli- parliamentary system in Russia, the Dumas. Um, and so, sort of, can one be truly ideological if they want to participate in well, you internal know, politics? Okay. I, you know, it's always contextual. Uh, it's quite possible for, for someone like me um, to go and knock on people's doors and urge them to vote for President Obama without uh, announcing to them all of my left-wing opinions, right? I don't consider that dishonest in any way because I'm doing something that I do think is for the the best. And, you know, in my life, I'm constantly working together, whether in electoral politics or in my job, with people whose views I don't share, I think, but I also think there are ways and ways, there are many different ways of uh, bringing your ideology to other people in a way that can be re- respectful, that can say, well, you, you know, I, I see your point, but I, my point would be this. You, you understand what I'm saying? And the left, unfortunately, does have an awful strong tradition of uh, of speaking very disrespectfully about other people's opinions and, and this is the part of the problem I was talking about, impunity, and basically only wanting to hang out with the people 
that already agree with us. This is a problem that I think is part of the problem of human beings, which is that we like to relax, and we like to relax with people we feel most comfortable with. Uh, but social movements have to do more than that. Well, um, I think there can be little doubt about the centrality of understanding the... Sorry. That's all right. I think there can be little doubt about the centrality of understanding the new left for anybody who's interested in the wave of social movements that began around the time that uh, Professor Gordon's been talking about and which is, continues to be with us today. And I think what was striking about what you did is that you provided a kind of wide-angle lens on this with this concept of a, a long new left, then pulling out series of characteristics and uh, developmental trends that were common to that long new left and its movement. And I just want to um, end our, our talk today by saying that there, it seems to me that there are critical questions there, especially about participatory democracy, something which I myself um, feel strongly about. And I think the nuanced account you gave of both the strengths of that but also critically the weaknesses is something that has a very strong contemporary resonance. I mean, we're living in a time where there's a kind of eulogisation of social network activism which takes on board the strengths but pays little attention to some of the weaknesses that you've analysed. So I think this is a talk which is both important as a historical talk but also one that gives us much food for thought as scholars and activists thinking about the world we live in today. And so on that note, I'd ask you to end by thanking Professor Gordon for the talk. <laughs>